What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? BFM 89.9, 9.38 in the morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. And this is, of course, WTF or What's the Focus? Our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed. I'm Shazana Mokhtar in studio with Wong Xiaoning and Mark Tan. Yay, it's Friday. So that's why we're doing WTF, right? And this is probably our favourite show, right? Of the entire Morning Run Showcase, simply because it is happening on a Friday. And it's all about making sure that uh, you out there get to enter your weekend full of interesting tidbits to share so that, uh, you know, you can sound clever and interesting to all your uh, mates. Yeah. <laughs> Water cooler talk. That's what we do at uh, 9.30 a.m. But of course, done intelligently, we hope. We hope. We, we hope, hope. We, we try. Hope, we but, try. All right, let's jump into our stories this week then. Uh, there's no overstating the importance of China to the tech giant Apple. If we take a look at in Q2 this year, sales in China contributed 15 billion US dollars to its coffers. But the days of the Chinese market driving Apple sales could be coming to an end after government agencies Agencies there began banning use of iPhones in sensitive departments this week. Now, the tech company is also expected by analysts to raise prices by as much as 100 US dollars for some updated models of its flagship device, which is expected to be unveiled next Tuesday at its annual promotional event. Now, top of the list is obviously the iPhone Pro Max, which will carry with it, you know, some new features, titanium casing, improved processors, and a photography feature that allow up to five to six optical zoom apps. Okay, the question is, are you prepared to pay more for these iPhones? Because the street talk out there, and I'm quoting Wall Street Journal, is that it's going to cost at least a hundred US dollars more. Don't even dare convert it into ringgit because the iPhone 14 currently, some of them, the models are more than already 5,000 ringgit. So if you convert that, it will probably be much higher. So are consumers ready for this very expensive phone. So you've got a few headwinds facing Apple, which is interesting this week. One of which that we know for a fact that quarter quarter and quarter, hardware sales have come down. Now they're supposed to launch this new iPhone next week and then it's going to be more expensive. Will consumers still buy those phones? Added to this is the headline coming out of China that, hey, if you're a China official, you're not supposed to be using Apple phones as your official phones and coincidentally, Huawei has come up with a super fast phone at the same time. Is this just the perfect storm for Apple? So you're referring to last week when Huawei launched its new phone, the Mate 60 Pro. Now the phone starts at 6,900 renminbi, which is about 7% cheaper than the basic iPhone 14 model. So not only is it cheaper, but it's using a Chinese manufactured 7 nanometer processing chip from Huawei's own chip subsidiary, Helisilicon. Now unfortunately, this phone is also being investigated on whether it violates any of the US ban on Huawei, as the Mate 60 Pro handset is believed to be using South Korea's SK Hynix memory and flash storage chips. Now, we know that US has imposed certain trade bans on Huawei due to its links with the military in, in China. So I guess right now, the Mate 60 Pro, it's still seen as um, a local a domestic play because mm. uh, at the moment, analysts aren't sure yet whether uh, this will actually have appeal beyond China's shores. Um, but I suppose China's market is large enough to sustain it that uh, it could make a splash, especially if a lot of people can't use iPhones more broadly. Yeah, and I'm also curious. Okay, so now the Chinese government has basically said, okay, you can't use Apple phones. 
um, is it going to spread to any other American products out there? Because it's not just going to be phones, right? If you're going to take this tit-for-tat approach. To be fair, the Americans, of course, have banned Chinese companies from access to certain semiconductor chips. They've banned Americans uh, from working for certain Chinese companies. So they also have retaliated. So it's a tit-for-tat and it just seems to be widening as we speak. And then now impacting specific products. Well, I suppose if you're a person who likes to take a lot of photos with your camera, just in terms of technical specific, specification comparison, the Huawei Mate 60 Pro has a 3.5x optical zoom for photography, whilst the expected iPhone 15 Pro Max has a 5 to 6x optical zoom. So maybe that will help you make a decision and pay that premium for the Apple phone camera. Okay, but still, if you're from China and you're a Chinese national, uh, sorry, official, you can't, even if you wanted that fancy phone. I think everyone's going to be watching Apple stocks in the coming weeks to see if it can regain any of its losses. We did see stocks fall following that announcement from the Chinese government. Uh, I guess we'll see whether uh, Apple can regain uh, its momentum in that sense. Uh, but Tuesday, Tuesday. On oh, Tuesday. Be <laughs> well, Wednesday our time. Well, let's uh, take a look at another country uh, very close to China, and that is India, because this weekend India is set to host the G20 summit in New Delhi, and it's certainly creating a stir with its invitations. So a dinner invitation sent to the visiting leaders of G20 countries described itself as coming from the president of Bharat instead of president of India. And this has led to questions on whether India is seeking to change its name. So the invitation is for dinner on Saturday as the G20 is hosted over the weekend of both Saturday and Sun, uh, Sunday as well, right? So Bharat is a Sanskrit meaning, uh, which is a nation's official name in Hindi. But in all communication in English and other countries, the nomenclature has always been India. But just a fun fact, you know, the right-wing national party does draw its name Bharat uh, from that particular thing. Now, this is not the first time... a country has decided to change its name because we have a few examples like from Turkey to Turkey, Burma to Myanmar, Ceylon to Sri Lanka and of course Zaire to Democratic Republic of Congo. Okay, but it, it's it's a question of why are they doing it now, right? Uh, is there a particular reason? Um, I think critics have said, you know, is this to dis... Is it just to stir up nationalism, which of course the BJP party is particularly known for? Is it just a populist measure that Modi wants to carry out? And in the past, remember, he tried to remove small denominated notes of the rupee, which caused chaos, which was another populist move that turned out to be a disaster. So is he really going to go ahead with this? Uh, there was talk that parliament will have a special session to debate this and push it through. So far, no official word on this yet. No official word on this yet. And we do see the opposition parties in India uh, raising questions about this and expressing criticism over this move. So I guess that's something we're just going to have to keep an eye on to see what happens. But in any case, even when a country changes its name, there's no, uh, how to say, there's no guarantee that others will begin to uh, use it uh, more mm. regularly, more broadly. I'm thinking in particular of Swaziland. Did you know in 2018 they changed their name to Iswatini? No, I didn't. Well, there you go. You still see them as Swaziland, right? But yes. uh, it's Iswatini now just so you know okay so you can do it in in uh, the law you can do it through parliament you can make it official but changing changing people's mindset or their habits now that's difficult indeed well it is 9 46 in the morning let's take a quick break but we'll come back with more of uh, the top stories of the week and these news tidbits that we have uh, after that stay tuned bfm 89.9 
9.48 a.m. You're listening to WTF or What's the Focus on the Morning Run. I'm Shazana with Xiaoning and Mark. Uh, we are, we just celebrated Merdeka Day and we're going to be observing Malaysia Day next week. So it seems apt to have a conversa- conversation on what counts as patriotism and what could possibly be going too far. So a proposed ban on clothes that could hurt a nation's feelings is, I would argue, on the extreme side of the nationalist spectrum, but this is an actual proposal in China. And I'm totally stumped on this, right? Although it's just a draft law, but people could be found, guilt, found guilty, could be fined or jailed, and the proposal doesn't spell out what constitutes a violation. So how do you measure whether a nation's feelings can be hurt based on what you wear. I mean, it's totally subjective, right? But it seems like in March this year, the Chinese police detained a woman for donning a replica of a Japanese military uniform at a night market. So maybe that's the first example we have of how this law could potentially take shape um, on the streets of China. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit in terms of what the punishment could be like. So you're looking at being detained up to 15 days, fined up to 5,000 yuan, which is about 680 US dollars. Now, the proposed legal changes will forbid insulting, slandering or otherwise infringing upon the names of local heroes and martyrs, as well as vandalism of their memorial statues. Now, the point about this is that they're really extending uh, current legislation It's not just the clothing. It's much wider than that. But when you go back to the clothing, right, uh, how do you know when somebody's nation's feelings are hurt? What's, What's the benchmark here? But to be fair, Malaysia, we've had our fair share of news stories when it comes to dressing, right? What's appropriate? Uh, we've had like what you can and cannot wear to government departments. <laughs> we've seen photos of a woman using a floor mat to cover her knees so she can go into a government department. Should the state in the first place be policing what what we can and cannot wear? It goes back to who exactly is being offended by what we're wearing or not, yeah? And I guess that's one of the big questions I have when you talk about hurting a nation's feelings. Like, who is this nation that you speak of, especially given the fact that a nation is made up of multitudes? Mm. And there's really no one, I don't know if we can say that there's just one norm or one, uh, how to say... Uh, the Standard, yeah, right? That is applicable what... for everyone. I mean, and, and it also goes even, like, we look at Malaysia's history. At one point, wasn't it like wrong to wear a yellow t-shirt to walk around the streets of KL? And, you know, there were thousands of people who did it. In fact, you couldn't buy a yellow t-shirt even if you had money. Everything was sold out. But it suddenly became a crime because it stood for something. Um, do we, do we, are we going to stop, stop this? I mean, how, where, how far do you want to go? I think um, making rules in the name of nationalism is a very slippery slope. And I, I guess when you use nationalism and patriotism as the anchor to doing something, it, to me, it's something that we should question and, and take mm. a look at a second time before just taking it at face value. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, in other news, if we take a look at um, what's happening this week, uh, we did see the ASEAN summit just conclude in Jakarta. And um, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, was there. He said the world body is hopeful that Malaysia, Indonesia and Laos can help efforts to significantly improve the situation in Myanmar. I think we were talking earlier with Sharon Sia of IC's Yusuf Isha Institute 
about how paralyzed ASEAN has been when it comes to resolving the Myanmar crisis. But I do think that the UN Secretary General was also talking about other elements mm. of this crisis that maybe we do have some control over. All right. And, you know, with Laos taking over the chairmanship of ASEAN and sharing a common border with Myanmar, I mean, they could be in a better position to hopefully push forward the, the Myanmar Five Point Consensus Accord. Now, in the meantime, obviously, we are facing a huge refugee, refugee crisis from Myanmar with over 200,000 refugees expect, you know, seeing, being seen across ASEAN region. Yeah, so what's the long-term solution here? The, the issue has been that the military government, the junta in Myanmar, pretty much have refused almost all forms of negotiation, whether it's a soft, soft approach or even a stick approach. Now, until they are willing to come to the negotiation negotiating table, right, the, the refugee state issue will continue in Malaysia. But what are we doing for them? We also, you know, there's lots of accusations about us in terms of that we don't treat them right. You know, when they're here, they're not allowed to work. They don't have access to, the children have no access to education. I think we need to be fair to everybody. And the reality is that, let's face it, these people who are here, they don't want to be here. They're here because they are fleeing persecution. And the war has been going on in Myanmar, especially for some of these smaller ethnic groups, even before the military took over. Indeed. And the fact that uh, Malaysia is not a signatory to the uh, 1951 Refugee Convention um, complicates things legally in some way. It's what uh, it's the line that uh, officials like to use when mm. saying that we don't have any responsibility to refugees. But that's completely incorrect because we absolutely do have responsibilities uh, to people who come to our uh, shores in distress. And I think there's definitely room for a much broader policy rethink when it comes to how we treat uh, refugees that come to the country. For sure. All right. Let's uh, maybe end on, uh, unfortunately, a not so happy note as well uh, in terms of what uh, has been happening this week. And I think in the in the big discussion really is that uh, court case, Yayasan Akalbudi trial in which the Deputy Prime Minister Datuk Sri Ahmad Zaid Hamidi was given a discharge not amounting to an acquittal after the prosecution team actually um, uh, proposed for that uh, decision from the court uh, and that has been causing a lot of uproar and also a lot of reflection and debate into where exactly the country is heading in terms of its um, corruption efforts, I suppose. Correct. So is this the Malaysia Madani that Malaysians want? Because I think one of the big election campaigns that Anwar Ibrahim did put for himself for was the battle to fight corruption. Now, to his defense so far, he's always been coming to say we should let the courts take its course. But, you know, the million-dollar question is... The explanation from the AG's office, you know, are, are we willing to accept that explanation? And they are the ones who dropped the case themselves, you know, not the court decided on behalf of the defendant. Okay, so if you really want to know more and you want to have an understanding of the intricacies of it and the political consequences or maybe even the fallout that could potentially happen as a result of this case, I would recommend everyone to read an op-ed by Wong Chinhuat, uh, who is, of course, um, you can find it on Malaysia Kini that's available. Now, of course, he is the Professor and Deputy Head of Strategy of the Asian Headquarters of the UN Sustainable Pro Development Solutions Network at Sunway University. And he's, of course, a frequent commentator. And his point is, okay, this has then happened, but can Dato Sri Anwar say, hey, it's the court's decision. It had nothing to do with me. I don't interfere in these decisions. Is that really the case? Yes, you shouldn't interfere, but the consequences will be reflected in on your government. I think it's um it, it is a bit difficult to just wash your hands of what's yeah. happening under your um oversight essentially. And I think uh this is the time where 
if they're serious about policy reforms in terms of it, it changing the institution of the legal and judiciary, you know, in strengthening, mm. um, for example, what the AG um, AGC does, I think now's the time to do it. And I'm wondering what's the consequences for the rest of the coalition parties within the Madani government? We have seen different parties voice out uh, their concerns about this decision, right? Mm. Uh, showing that perhaps there isn't as much cohesion or as much clarity in terms of what is happening. Uh, but yes, something that we're going to keep watching moving forward, it is 9.56 in the morning. We're going to be heading into the 10 a.m. News Bulletin. And then after that, it's going to be over to Enterprise. Taking you to the news is Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.